0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: An issue that he had noticed with female magazine writers is that they didn't have, like, confidence in in their ability or in their like um, thinking the way that a lot of male magazine writers did and I totally that totally resonated
0: with me in a world where two guys have a podcast and talk about writing
2: how many people here think Kyle's voice is straight from NPR Uh, Not not that voice. I would
0: imagine all the people are raising their hands.
2: So if you like Two Guys Who Have a Podcast, Uh, go to Writers Who Don't Write. Um, You can find us at www.podcast.com or soundcloud.com slash www-podcast. Or you can follow our personal handles at Jeff Umbrell.
0: Or at Kyle Craner. where we'll talk about all of our personal things and
2: also things related to the podcast. So if you like it, follow us. And fast food. And now that the blatant self-promotion is over... Uh, who do we have on the show this week? Jessica Pressler. And what's she going to talk about? Uh, her career as a magazine writer. Um, she writes for New York Magazine, uh, LGQ, a ton of other places.
0: But she's such an awesome person, too. I feel like when you watch those movies about the journalists who are badasses and write uh, you know, feature-length articles, that's about her.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a very lofty title, but yes, um, that's actually fairly accurate. Uh, she does these lofty but accurate yeah, she does these like really amazing long form pieces where she'll interview you know a big personality a celebrity a financial titan a new company a media arm um and she does such a great job of it that they just keep giving her more assignments um you know some of the people that she has interviewed that we talked about on the show include include tim geithner lloyd Blankfein, lynn hilton um Channing Tatum, uh, and she also has this really awesome piece that just came out fairly recently about uh, these women in New York who they, she calls them "lady hustlers" because she will or they will uh, you know, drug men, bring them to a strip club, and steal you know forty or fifty thousand dollars from them in one go. I mean, it's really hard to do all of her work justice, so I feel like we should just get into it. Uh, So we're here today with Jessica Pressler, who is a contributing editor to New York Magazine. Uh, She's written for basically everywhere you can imagine, uh, LGQ, uh, a million other places. Um, So welcome.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having
2: me. And yeah. making me margaritas. Yeah, it's a good idea. Which is a good thing for the podcast. <laughs> Kyle actually made a pretty good margarita with a few missing ingredients, but I tend bar
0: I tend bootleg bar pretty well. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like a I'm like a, a jazz bartender. Like if <laughs> That's you put me behind an, to yeah, be. an actual bar, I might not know what to do. Okay. But if you let me loose in Dwayne Reed and maybe a discount liquor store, I can make something happen. I
1: think that should be a reality show
2: use seltzer, like yeah. seltzer you instead of, of tequila yeah. or something. Um, this is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Jessica, uh, where do you come from? Like how did you get from, you know, like birth to now?
1: <laughs> that's um, that's a really long story because I'm old. No, you're not that so old. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really long story. Um, I'm the, from the, Massachusetts Oh, originally. cool. I'm from New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Exeter. That's like our toothless cousin. Right? Yeah. (laughs) We have have better hiking than you do. You do have better hiking than we do. That's that's for sure. Um, I'm from Massachusetts. Um, I went to school in Philadelphia, not at Penn, at Temple University. That's fun. Um, Bill Cosby spoke at my graduation. That was not (laughs) fun. He was wearing a hat with like a little
0: twirly propeller on it.
2: Did you do a piece on him? No. Okay. No.
0: <laughs> no. Fortunately. What do you call that hat with the twirly <laughs> propeller? There's a name for it, right? There it's is. Like a, like a beanie or something? That's not I a think
1: it's a beanie, but but then a beanie became those knit caps
0: that people yeah. in Los Angeles
1: wear. So now I don't really know. That's always confused it's me.
0: I always thought of a beanie as the thing with the propeller, and now people say it about the cool hats. Exactly. Like, cool with air quotes, which you yeah. can't see that I'm making. So. I thought. They were there.
2: You believe in me. So, I mean, you um, went into – you did an interview with Max Linsky at Longform, like, almost two years ago, a little Mm -hmm. bit shy of that. And you went into a ton of detail about, you know, how you went, got into magazine writing, um, you know, coming from your background in Philly and and such. Uh, And I recommend that episode. I think it's 114. I know that because I listened to it again very recently. Uh, But I recommend everybody check that out because it was a, like, really awesome interview. But, um, you know, since it's been a couple years – Like, kind of fill us in. Um, You know, you went to school, you moved to New York, you became a writer by doing like some smaller things, and then it turned into some bigger things. And now you're this super like prolific and effusive writer who interviews all of these awesome, uh, you know, celebrities and you know finance guys and startup dudes and um, finance women and um, and you know you you've you've done a lot. So kind of you know. I guess give us the cliff notes of like where you where you've been in the last few years
1: um, in the last few years since that, I've done a lot um, yeah it's fun this job I mean it's hard to not do a lot because there's a lot of opportunity to do fun stuff and people are constantly like kind of through it. You know, it's just, like, the funnest job because you can just have an idle curiosity and pick up the phone and, like, call people and figure it out, and that's your job. Um, so – but since then, like, what have I been doing two years – That podcast, I've never listened to it because I'm afraid to listen to it.
2: You're you're the, (laughs) I think, third person who's been on that show that has told me they haven't listened to their episode.
1: Cool, because we all hate the sound of our own voices because we have to listen to our interviews that we record, and it's like just this like shame spiral inducing thing. So we're really sick of the sound of our own voices in a lot of ways. (laughs) Well,
2: it's so funny because I mean, I listen. I mean, this is because I'm narcissistic, but. I've listened to every episode that we've done of this podcast like several times, mostly because I have to like do the cut sheet when we edit, uh-huh. but also because I enjoy it. Uh-huh. And yeah, you might be the only one I, on the face of the earth who enjoys the sound of their own voice. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> think- I edit
0: it. I'm the one who edits it. I don't I think you've listen ever to listened it. to one of
2: them, even with the edits. He takes my sheet and just goes to where he needs to make the cuts, and I don't think he listens to anything.
1: That's so. amazing. Yeah. Well, That's kind of cool. You have a special gift.
2: I guess. It's kind of a shitty gift. <laughs> is, that, is that how you'd characterize
0: it? A
1: special gift, yeah. It's a gift. Um, so uh, I don't even remember what the question was. Um, you said, what have I been doing in the past two years? Um, I guess, like, it's kind of been, I, I want to say it's been, like, a lot of the same. Like, yeah. I just kind of go and talk to really interesting people um, and sometimes do weird and fun activities with them. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. This airs in June, so I can't tell you about some pretty recent ones. But um, yeah, a, a lot of profiles, a lot of um, kind of investigative, more investigative stories. Although I tend to investigate things that like are not, you know, it's not Watergate. <laughs> but um, well, I mean, it's, it, it's
2: pretty, pretty, you know, impressive stuff. Like we have, uh, we actually, you, long form is, you know, a um, What's the word I'm thinking of? Long form is, is a big influence of what we do here. Um, mm-hmm. And I think so far that we've been good enough to not actually have any guests that have already been on long form. And that's kind of on purpose.
1: Oh, am I the exception
2: to that? Yeah. I mean there's a there, it, there will be more exceptions in the future. But right now you're the exception because I just really wanted to talk to you. What I um, really
1: would have liked is if you had just asked me all the same questions – and I could have just answered them the way that I did in my head after I left the <laughs> studio. I just do like a total do-over.
0: Well, that's I, a good question. Is there anything that you came away from that interview with and you're like, man, well, well she this is the l- one she thing has I has really listened to Oh, for sure. But different.
1: I haven't listened to it. But, like, but for sure in the immediate aftermath, I was like, I just thought of the perfect answer. But now it's a little bit more like in my head I did answer them that way because I never had to listen to it. So it's fine. <laughs>
0: well, is there anything you want to correct the record on? No,
1: no, I don't think so. Yeah.
0: What's what's one of the more interesting profiles you've done in the last couple of years that you can talk about? Like, what's your favorite so far?
1: Um, my favorite so far is for sure the stripper story that I did about the the strippers who were accused of drugging uh, their customers and stealing their money. That was really fun and kind of like reward. I mean, it was actually a huge hassle in a lot of ways, but it was it was fun and rewarding and, and interesting. Um, and I got to work on it for a really long time, um, kind of over a period of a year and and change. Um, so that was really enjoyable, just talking to all of these different personalities and trying to figure out this underworld that I didn't really know that well. It's kind um,
2: of kind of interesting that you bring that up because with that piece, um, you you write really long pieces and. <laughs> I know that. They're not we, as
1: long as they used to be in New York Magazine. Oh,
2: I know. I, I mean, we, we read as much as we could. Um, but, I mean, at a certain point we had to stop. But, I mean, you you have these, like, crazy, like, 6,000-word pieces or longer or some are shorter but not many. Um, and you have dozens of them. And I, I wanted to ask you kind of how long you spend on each of these pieces because, you know, that, that story about the, you know, these women at Hustlers – um you know, you said that you spent over a year on it. And some like the Channing Tatum piece um that you wrote, uh you were with him for one night and I assume right. there was like a somewhat quick turnaround there. Mm-hmm. But um you know, how long typically are you spending, you know, doing the research or reporting or that kind of thing for some of the pieces that you write?
1: There isn't really a typical um I don't think there's really a typical amount of time. Um uh if I actually added it up, it would be like really depressing. It would be like adding up the amount of time that you spend like standing on a subway platform. Like, <laughs> you'd be like, what have I done with my life? You know, and you, you know, it would be appalling how much money I get paid in and all of that. So I haven't actually really ever done the math on it. But um, it, it, it depends because, I mean, especially earlier on, I think. I do like a lot of reporting. I was actually in like kind of in preparation for this looking back at some of my like older articles and like, you know, it's just spending days and days with people like just so like those, the, the, they're not strippers, but those girls, I spent a lot of time talking to them. I spent like a ton of time on the phone with them, Um, you know, at least once a week, you know, or every day, some weeks, like. Just a a ton of time.
0: That story is terrifying because of – I mean in part because of the way it resolved at the end with her telling you everything was made up. But for the most part because no one believes the victims at first. And like there are these people who they've been preying on and no one believes them.
1: Yeah, because I think men definitely had that reaction. Yeah, including like the cops who were investigating it.
0: Well, and the two that you talked to, or I'm sure there were more that you talked to, but the two who you gave the the quotes to of you know you see this all the time, and for the most part, it's it's really great that you had a good time, but you know maybe next time think
2: before you spend thirty grand at the club. Um, I thought it was interesting too because, and you you just hit on this a little bit about you know men's reactions to the piece, but. I mean, you you spend a lot of time writing about people that have, you know, been perceived to have done really terrible things. Um, but I didn't – And I mean, you have this way of writing where you're just like – you kind of cut through all the bullshit. Um, you know, you can kind of just like get into uh, what people are thinking. But with this piece, I kind of feel like maybe you were, you know, um, a little bit more compassionate to them than some of your other pieces. Well, one
0: of the questions I had was how much sifting did you have to do before you got to meet the real Rosie? Was she upfront with you from the start or was there a process of getting to know each other before she really started to get into the heart of the story?
1: Um, I don't know that I ever met the real Rosie in some respects. Um, I basically – I met her very briefly in court and she was very friendly and and sweet and then I went out to her house and you know she she told me some things and she held back a lot of things and then she'd told me some things and she'd hold back a lot of things and um and then there were times that she definitely lied to me about stuff. Um, Which was funny because she was, like, not a great liar, even though she was, like, a professional liar. She wasn't, like, that good at it. Like, you can be like, oh, yeah, you have to be on drugs to, like, really be buying this. (laughs) Um, But, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in the end, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I think about her a lot because I spent so much time talking to her. And we did kind of talk about, like, real things and deep things and, you know – she would sort of swing back and forth between wanting to present this front and this personality and you know just being like and wanting to be a good person or <laughs> and who just cares about her family and then like it was it was a lot of like it it was intense it was like an intense thing because i she was kind of putting me in charge of something that she wasn't sure that she wanted to give me really. And um, She wanted to control it herself. And, uh, yeah, uh, but I, how long did it take? I, she she would just open up like here and there kind of a little bit I think is the answer.
0: One of the, the interesting parts of reading long feature articles are some of the scene recreations that you do. Like when Rosie and Sam are sitting in the Escalade and, you know, Sam is buying Gucci shoes on the iPad. But it's written almost like a fiction narrative. How much of that is recreated through – like basically, what's the process of creating a scene like that?
1: Yeah, that's so hard. Um, And I really, like, admire people who who can do that a lot. Um, For me, like, whenever I have a scene like that, I've either gone back to the person a bunch of times and asked them about it, which I did in that case. I asked Rosie about it a bunch of times. And then it's sort of, like, triangulation. Like, you know, like, does Samantha, like, asking other people, like, does Samantha use her iPad to shop all the time? Like, I, you know, you meet Samantha and she's wearing cushy shoes. Like, it kind of, <laughs> kind of, like, all, there's just a lot of, like, little details that you pull from various places and trying to, like, put it together. And then I think with that, I, I kind of called her as I was writing it. Rosie and, and and kind of went over some of the little details.
0: That's it's that's the part about long form journalism that's always fascinated me. I think is how you construct that narrative that reads so close to like something that you would actually put together if you were writing fiction. Um, and it that's seems the like, fun part of is, it. Yeah,
1: is, yeah. <laughs> is, when you're like working when you're like working with the person that you're writing about, and it's not like a celebrity that you meet for two hours in a restaurant, mm-hmm. but you can like call them up and be like, "And what were you wearing? And, like this?" and am like. That's a wonderful thing when you can do that. That's really fun.
2: How did you come up with this story?
1: Um, I just read about it in, like, the post or something, you know, or or one of the places that reports on these things. And I just knew that there was more to it, like, right away um, and that I was really interested in their story because I had done a story about a a former stripper before, and I kind of just, like, was fascinated by that world and the kind of transactional nature of it and how it's not – quite what it would seem to be. Um, So, yeah, so I reached out to them that way. And I knew that they were going to be pissed that the Post and the tabloids were calling them strippers because I I already knew right off the bat that they didn't – they weren't strippers. They had like – I mean they were former strippers but they – and that was going to annoy them. I don't remember how I knew that exactly but it was just kind of like the way that they were treated – And the tabloids just generally was like a bunch of gang of strippers. Like it just kind Mm -hmm. of didn't think of them as people in a way. And they were
2: people. uh, Yeah, I mean, and and that's totally like accurate and true. But they did bad things.
1: They did bad things, yeah. Yeah.
2: And I mean, I feel like there was a lot of compassion in the piece. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what was that like? Like trying to reconcile, like, you know. I guess, the the standard values of, of what people think of when they think of somebody who did something like that, and then trying to write them in as, you know, somebody that you want to really connect with.
1: Yeah, I guess, like, for me, I could just see, because of what I knew about um, stripping and, and existing in the world as a woman probably like being a woman who reports on wall street guys and interacting with them i could sort of see how they could how that could be like a slippery slope how you could get to that point and that that was the thing that interested me about it the most is that you know how you could just kind of stop thinking of these people as human and Mm -hmm. just be like i'm gonna like extract money from them and and uh it seemed relatable to me as a crime in a way that, like, a lot of other crimes would not be relatable.
2: So how how many of the stories that you typically write are pitched to you from you know, publicists and that kind of thing and to promote a movie or something? And, and how many of them are stories that you kind of come up with on your own?
1: Um, hmm. uh, I wouldn't say a lot are pitched by publicists. No, no offense. No,
2: it's a, I, I'm, a, <laughs> I mean, I'm a publicist in my day job. It's great when of.
1: publicists have, um, have uh, like, clients who have something to promote. Um, then you can get access to a person that you wouldn't ordinarily get mm-hmm. access to, um, like if they have a book or a movie. Uh, and then, you know, the editors at New York Magazine are pretty um, active in giving you ideas and stuff. And then I come up with my own ideas a lot, too. So I'd say it's... Fifty-fifty, like editors, publicists, and me.
2: Did you see Trainwreck? Yeah, that scene where uh, they're all sitting around a table and, and you know doing like a pitch meeting or something. Is that at all accurate?
1: Um, I think so. I don't go to those, <laughs> but but I think I think maybe a little bit. Okay. But I think it's mostly editors. I think they keep the writers out of it. Yeah. For the reason that, like, you don't have a situation in Trainwreck where people's, like, feelings get hurt or whatever. Like, they just keep that nasty discussion away from us so that our sensitive souls don't get hurt.
0: Interesting. Um, you mentioned that you you reached out to do this story. You reached out to Rosie. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the other stories that you mentioned in the email run-up to this was doing Lloyd Blankfein, a profile on him. Uh, and you called him your white whale. <laughs> yeah. So I got to know, first, why why would you call him your white whale? And second, how much – I guess how much did you contribute to trying to get him over the years to make him that?
1: Um, well, so when I started at New York Magazine, I was doing the Daily Intel blog, which um, covered uh, – and I started in 2007. So I think – or yeah, it was 2007. And I was there, like, right for the financial crisis and saw, like, everything that Goldman Sachs went through. And because uh, nobody really knew how to, like, write about the financial crisis, at me and the one other guy who were doing Daily Intel at the time, I sort of took it over and focused on, a lot on the personalities because they were, like, what interested me, um, who these people were that were running these big banks. And so I had been kind of following, like, who Lloyd Blankfein was and, like, what Goldman Sachs had done and and, um, all of the other banks, too. But Goldman was, if you remember that time, like, particularly vilified and particularly, like, interesting to watch and pay attention to. And it was funny because they had this, um, you know, Nefarious vampire squid reputation, <laughs> but uh, Lloyd Blankhunt, If you ever like saw him talking, you were like, you're like a little adorable clown in some
2: ways. Like he's just like a little like he looks like the vaudeville dan- act, a very powerful, powerful dancing guy, from adorable clown. Yeah, commercial.
1: yeah. I, I shouldn't say he's a clown. I, I mean, he's a scary clown, <laughs> but um, <laughs> if he's a clown. But uh, yeah, so I've kind of been following him on the blog, and he just became like one of my kind of stock characters that I was writing about and I did think that Goldman um kind of bore a little bit more of their fair share of the blame um or the opprobrium at the time um and that was interesting to me um just how you Defend that because <laughs> like, I mean, their their public relations problem was interesting to me. Actually, I was like, how do you say, like, we're not that bad, like you know, we're they not can't, the worst. They can really does. do it, so yeah. I was like, but I, I can say that you know, maybe they're not as bad, or you know, I can like you know, get in there and that opinion. Um, and so yeah, I kind of I spent like ages and ages, and I I spent like a long time thinking that I was going to do a write-around of Floyd Blankfein and um, not interview him and I wasn't going to get access to him. And somehow I convinced their then public relations guy um, to give me like a few minutes or some time. It was, it was more than a few minutes. It was a while. Um, I loved To his beca- everlasting regret. <laughs> I
2: loved how he became a character in the story, too.
1: Well, he is a wonderful character. Yeah. I mean, Lucas von Prague is like one of the great... Like characters of my life <laughs> like he's just a really cutting British amazing and his comments during the financial crisis were just like amazing like yeah. he just said I, I wish I could remember some of his best things that he said
0: there was the one uh, the idea that Goldman had concocted a conspiracy was a chimera of how oh, was a word for fever yeah uh, it was a chimera a of a febrile mind. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: was just like
0: that was one of the ones that. And that was out. in like really the York It was just yeah.
1: that is really good. Yeah, that, nailed it. That is, you totally. Nailed All right, we can it. go
2: home now. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah, he he was like a a wonderful uh, character out of like Harry Potter, basically. And um, is he Slughorn?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say he's Slytherin, or I think he I think he might. Be Gryffindor. This is
2: another I Harry. Put him as
0: Ravenclaw, honestly. Ravenclaw. Yeah. This, this is another
2: yeah. Harry Potter reference. By <laughs> the way, I know
0: we we've managed to go in my favorite twist of doing this podcast. I don't think we managed to go a single episode across the eleven or twelve that we've done without mentioning Harry Potter. Oh, at least that's once. so weird. Yeah. I mean, it's less
2: so, weird when you know how big of a fan of Harry Potter than I. <laughs> that uh, I am. But okay. Huge. So you you've done a bunch of these like profiles of these you know big titans of finance. Um, you know I think you did Tim Geithner. Um. You did uh, Lynn Tilton, a um, handful of others. Uh, what's that been like? I mean, are you kind of like nefarious when it comes to these circles now? Like do people avoid you? Or are people generally kind of happy with the profiles that you write?
1: Hmm. Well, the Lloyd one was really interesting because I I think that, that – this is maybe giving myself too much credit. But I think that that actually kind of changed the narrative for him a little bit. Yeah.
2: It's
1: a really Um, fair piece. Yeah, it it was, and like you know, I don't know that they see it that way, um, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Who cares? Um, Do they avoid me? You know, I don't know. Uh, It depends. I mean, generally, finance heads of financial institutions and financial firms in general, since the Wall Street crash, are not seeking publicity. Publicity is like nothing but bad news if you've seen billions at all.
2: I was like going to ask <laughs> you about that.
1: If you're like out there in the news and you're and you're being flashy and you're like talking about how great you are, it's like an invitation. It's like come and get me, SEC. It's just like. People don't want publicity.
2: So, what do you think about that, David Axelrod and Billions? Um, oh my
1: god, I love it.
2: It's so good, <laughs> but they like really dramatize it, obviously, because it's a Showtime show. But... Yeah. Um, uh, for those of us uninitiated, can you run down Billions in a sentence for me? Uh, David Axelrod uh, made millions of dollars by betting. Bobby account... Axelrod. Oh, Bob. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say David, <laughs> David Axelrod's a real guy. He's a That's real person. A... <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I was
0: confused for a second.
2: I'm sorry, David. Was not what I thought <laughs> it was. Uh, Bobby Axelrod made you know millions of dollars, which he later turned into billions of dollars by betting against the airlines uh, the day after September 11th. Um, oh man! And in the process, everybody in his firm died because they were in the tower. And Jesus. Um. And, and I'm sorry, that was a big spoiler. Uh, <laughs>
0: but um. <laughs> is it? I hope. Oh man! And, and so, you, mean, so now I don't need to watch it. Well, that's
2: no, like that's no. like a half season spoiler. Yeah,
1: it's not. <laughs> but, it won't mess
2: up. So yet. it's about. I, 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 yeah. And meanwhile, Paul Giamatti is you know this big district attorney who like has it out against Bobby Axelrod. And um, but,
1: but his is it's really complicated. Oh, it's because so it's it's TV.
0: Fan of the show as a someone who's done financial profiles, would you say that it's accurate? Should I watch it?
1: Um, I think you should watch it. I think right. it has like these like moments of accuracy that are that are spot on, and like I think like in some ways the arc is is kind of spot on. I mean, although there's a lot of ridiculous. It's, it's a TV show, so it's dramatic and silly, and they go back and forth from Connecticut to New York like ridiculously quickly, and you're like, How'd you do that? So would <laughs> <We're> not happen. <laughs> but um, but it's it's a good show, and um. But yeah, the point is, is that I think that like a lot of these places don't want PR, and if they do want PR, then as a journalist, you're like, what's wrong? what's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, why do you want? Why do you want to talk to me?
2: Well, um, so you 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 talked a little bit about how it was so difficult to like nobody was doing a good job writing about you know the financial collapse. Um, <laughs>
1: wait, and, I didn't say that. I didn't no, say. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs>
2: I'm I'm, I'm uh, projecting. That's um, that's how we're gonna cut it together afterwards. No, you said you said. Uh, that, you know, a lot of people were having trouble understanding what was happening, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the temptation to pretend to understand what was happening was, like, huge. So okay. you got a lot of articles that were, like, gibberishy.
2: And you you did a, a really awesome profile of the movie The Big Short. on oh, you know, yeah. That's and Adam hard. McKay, you know, you actually mentioned in the piece that, like, his entire goal with that film, or one of the goals of that film was, you know, to try and explain this to everybody in an entertaining way. mm mm-hmm. um, So – I mean, did they assign you that piece? I mean, I I guess it was kind of the perfect piece to assign you because, you know, you have so much experience both with celebrity, you know, personalities and with, you know, the financial institutions. But, I mean, that's another one that was just like super well researched. And uh, I imagine, you know, you had a lot of access to the people involved. Um, Also, what is Adam McKay really like? (laughs) Because
0: one of my favorite directors, and you also confirmed something that I had thought I had been seeing in his work, but wasn't. Entirely sure of, which was the themes behind the comedy
1: uh-huh. that
0: sort of became apparent in Anchorman Two when it came to the fore more, but the fact that his comedies are based on like underlying mm-hmm. anti corporate sort of anti government themes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, he's wonderful. He's like incredibly smart and also a very nice person, mm-hmm. um, in like a genuine not Hollywood way, and um. Yeah, it was really interesting to kind of dig into his background with Second City in Chicago and like and also he lived in Philly and um you know, he he had this like really like sharp edge when he was back at Second City like he did one bit that I don't know if it's made it into the story, but I thought it was really interesting where he advertised his own suicide on flyers around the <laughs> around the town and then like pretended to jump off of a building and they would just, like, do all this crazy, like, real, like, theater type stuff, like, mm. theater nerd type stuff. Um, and his whole, like, comedy comes from just the, the whole Second City thing, I guess, is, is trying to think of the unexpected thing. You know, it's, like, not the first thing you think of. It's not the not the first joke you think of, not the second joke, but, like, you know, the fifth joke or something mm. like that. It's just, like, super wacky. Um, yeah, he's he's amazing. And that story was assigned to me um, because the movie was coming out, mm-hmm. and I don't know how they like negotiated or how they decided on if Paramount came to them or whatever.
2: Um, I mean, you and you know, for anyone listening, you had you know interviews with Brad Pitt, with Ryan Gosling, with Steve Carell, with uh, who's the fourth? Um, I can't believe Christian it. Bale. Yeah, Christian Bale uh, with Michael Lewis and with Adam McKay. Yeah. Um, how and some that? of the
1: real guys, the hedge fund guys too, yeah. were involved, which was cool too. Um, it was neat. It was like so neat. I mean, it was it was a pain in the ass because it was like a big like Hollywood story, and it was like managed yeah. to a degree that like I want to just like run free and like, you know, like <laughs> be able to call people whenever I want. It was kind of like there was some management involved. I didn't love that, but when I was like in the room talking to the people, it was great and fine. And um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. It was cool to like see. It was cool to see like the mechanisms, like how that worked, because I don't know, I don't know that world at all. So that was really kind of neat to see, like to read the script and then like see it happening. And
2: oh, they that, let you read yeah. the script. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah,
1: it was cool. He actually has this really cool woman who um, like sits on the set with a script and um draws like the blocking like as they're doing the acting out the scene she kind of draws what they're doing and, and fills in the ad libs um so like if ryan gosling says something hilarious she'll like write it in the margins and there'll be like a little picture of ryan gosling
2: that's maybe. awesome yeah it was cool a little cartoonist on the script
1: it was cool but it was, he did a great job at i mean michael lewis did a great job with the book um you know, it's it's sort of like he took it to one level of understanding, and then Adam McKay was like, "I'm going to like make it more understandable for yeah. people who don't read about this stuff."
2: Well, he, he had this great line, and you you wrote about it. I noticed it when I watched it, but I didn't hear many people talking about it. I mean, not to say that they didn't, but I didn't hear a lot of people talking about, you know, the scenes where he like broke down the fourth wall, um, and Ryan Gosling was you know talking to to us as the audience, and you know, random celebrities would show up, like you know, Selena Gomez or Anthony Bourdain or something. You know, just to explain, you know, one of the issues that was happening, so that we would have an understanding. And um, I thought you did a really good job, you know, kind of working that into the piece. But um, what did you think of that? Because you haven't—I mean, I personally haven't really. seen I didn't that. know
1: if it was going to work. Really? When I was like watching it happen, because I went to the set, I was like, I don't know. Like this, like it's, it might be really corny. Like I don't know. It's it seemed it looked a little weird. But the rest of the like script was so brilliant. And they had sort of set it up, I think, where they could have cut that out if it didn't seem yeah. like it was working. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so, uh, so yeah. I but I was kind of like, I don't know. I, I I didn't really know if the movie was going to work when I was watching it because it's such a complicated topic, um, and. Uh, it's it's hard to make it visually interesting and funny and, like, you know, all that stuff. I mean – and but it was, like, a natural subject for me because that's what definitely I was trying to do at mm-hmm. Daily Intel when I was writing about the financial crisis. And, like, that's one of the things that I find really enjoyable about writing about Wall Street and, and – or found enjoyable. I don't really do it that much anymore because – Life is short. <laughs> but um, but uh, it is enjoyable to take this complicated thing that seems really boring and, like, unpack it. And when you, like, kind of crack it, it's really rewarding and fun.
0: Do you feel like they accomplished that with The Big Short now that you've seen the the sort of – because you wrote the piece before the movie came out, now that it's out. And it was relatively successful. Do you think they accomplished their goal of helping people understand?
1: I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I mean I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I thought it was um, the
2: best movie of the year.
1: Yeah. I, I, my mom was like, I still don't really know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she didn't understand it. But, but I think that, like, um, I think that, sure, some people get it. Yeah. They did a really good job. I mean, if you want to understand it, it is there to be understood. I think, like, there's a significant portion of the population that doesn't actually want to know. Like, their brain just, like, shuts off because it's it's actually pretty scary on a lot of
0: different levels. Totally scary. Yeah. <laughs> that
1: most and of our like,
0: economy is propped up on these teetering towers of CDOs.
1: That, uh, yeah. Well, so. yeah. The whole thing is just <laughs> held together with, like, toothpicks and
2: so, right. Speak, so speaking of, of <laughs> one of the, you know, potentially crumbling aspects of our economy is the media industry. Um and I think it's very strong. Uh okay. but I'm not sure I'm, you know, in the majority on that. Jeff is bullish um, on media. Let's have somebody. Well, my question is is twofold. One, um in this piece you inter- you had, you know, it was actually six different pieces. You know, there was five separate interviews and then this like big feature that you wrote. And the feature actually included these little tidbits from each of the interviews. And I read the feature first and then I read the interviews and every single one of them had a little piece to it that you had taken um, from that interview and, like, inserted it into the piece, and it was very recognizable. And my question is, um, and I mean this in no offensive way at all, but how much of it was, like, an editor trying to, like, kind of get some clickbait going by creating each of these different, like, you know, pages, I guess? Because they all had really unique headlines, which I'm um, – did you write them? No. I didn't think so. Um, <laughs> I so, don't write
1: headlines. Um, so basically what that was and, – and I wasn't sure if that was going to work either and it was the first time that Vulture did that. It was a Vulture story. Um, that's basically what my notes
0: look like.
1: <laughs> you know, <laughs> So I would do all those – I did all those interviews for the big story and then I just – We were like – and then we'll publish the secondary interviews, which are all these interesting people as &As. Uh Q&As because – and I don't think it's necessarily like a clickbait thing. I mean if anything, like nobody needs all those words, but it's more like, well, we have the space on the internet. Like let's just put it there Like, and like people who are interested in Brad Pitt can go to this. And and the most successful one was the one with Michael Burry, who's the investor that um, is played by Christian Bale in the movie, which I was kind of like – you know, I don't know if anybody's going to read this. And then it just like was our most emailed thing forever because he never gives interviews and it was. Well, it was. It was said really interesting things and yeah.
2: like
1: was incredibly articulate and smart. And
2: maybe, maybe I, you know, jumped too quickly because I did really enjoy them. Um, I don't know if I said that part. No, you
1: said you hated it. it was really they were offensive. awful. Everyone.
2: <laughs> no, but then my next said- question is like, where do you see media today? Um, I mean, you oh, obviously God. work at like a, a big media organization. Um, and you write for a bunch of others, mm-hmm. but you know, you had you had a piece on Henry Blodgett of Business Insider, you know, fairly soon after the site launched. Yeah. Um, and you had you know some opinions in that, and I'm wondering, you know, like looking back, like how do you see Business Insider now, and then how do you also see some of these sites like Vox or Buzzfeed or Medium, and and like what they're trying to do, and if you think it's going to work.
1: Um, do you know, it's funny. I actually like. I hated writing the Henry Blodgett piece for this reason, like, because I don't – this is going to sound really bad, but, like, I don't – I like Henry Blodgett. Actually, he's a really interesting character and just – is hilarious to me in some (laughs) respects. But um, I don't really follow this stuff, Mm -hmm. like, the where media is going discussion because – it's kind of like what we, we were just talking about. It. It's like it's so anxiety-producing and it's not helping me get my work done yeah. to, like, worry and to be like, oh, my god, I should be on Snapchat. Like, you know, like, <laughs> so, like all that stuff is just, like, not
2: – Well, you're on podcast now. That's all, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Need. But, like, I, I don't – so I don't really – I don't know. Because, well, I don't you're... think anyone knows. But I do know that, like, storytelling – is more important than it's ever been, yeah. like, across the board. Like, even when you talk to people in business in other industries, all they talk about is story and, like, narrative. So, like, that is going to remain alive, and, and good work will continue to, I th- I think, like, survive. And I don't know. But it's, like, a lot of it is pretty disgusting and pretty terrible, and you have all these, like, content farms, and it's just like... <sighs> It <laughs> was a well, choking noise. <laughs> I mean, you're you're in this like
2: you're in this great position because you know you are established and you already write for all the legacy and the traditional media's and and you do a really good job of it. You know, it, it, pretty much across the board, people like are saying you know Jessica's work is phenomenal. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, and I mean you've you've put in the hard work. You've proven yourself. Two out of two podcasters agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I guess you know. In the same vein, you've written a couple pieces on you know startup culture. Yeah. Um, you know Washio was one of the pieces, and you wrote a, a really great piece on Airbnb. Um, and I'm just kind of curious.
0: Well, it's like it, when let me let me ask a thought that I just had while you were talking about the direction of media and how it would directly affect you. When do you think you would start trying to find a new venue to tell your story? Like, what would it take to make you start searching for something like a new way to express yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- a cu- I mean, a couple different. I think that like every once in a while, I get this like anxiety that like I should like Oh my god! I like I'm, i like legacy. It sounds so like weighty and like Oh <laughs> my gosh! Like print whatever. And and the fact is, and I'm like, I should really just join a startup, but like I. I've been a blogger because I started out at the Daily and I know what, like, a terrible dehumanizing grind it is to, like, sit at a computer and churn stuff out. Like, I know what that feels like. And it wasn't anywhere close to the kind of pressure that people have now um, to produce stuff that is not offensive and, and is good. And, like, you know, I, I, I think it's, like, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that ever so <laughs> I like I, – I think I, I really like what I do. It's, it's like the most uh, – so even though I have these like moments of, of anxiety about it, it's like so enjoyable to do what I do that to not do it – like it's pretty low commitment like in terms of subject-wise. It's not like a book where you spend like two years on something unless you want to. Um, you meet interesting people you like travel like you get to be nosy, you get to like use like a lot of crazy adjectives it, and it's you, you're not like tied to your desk and in, in the ways that you are when you're in digital media um, And there are limitations obviously um, with just these walls of words that we produce like it would be there there are some innovations that could happen there but um, it's so much fun. Like it's just such a fun thing and, and I I do want to do other stuff. Like I think – like I should – maybe I'll write some film or TV stuff at some point maybe if that continues to exist. Um, but Pretty it's soon very hard to stop doing long-form magazine journalism if you have the opportunity to do it because it's fun.
2: How much do you write that doesn't get published? Like that, that uh. you write for yourself.
1: Oh, like nothing. That's that's a problem. <laughs> that's that's kind of a problem. I don't uh, I don't write a lot that doesn't get published.
2: I feel like you've been doing. I'm
1: like the opposite of you guys.
2: Well, yeah, but at the same time, like recently, you've been doing some cool stuff. Like you had this really like beautiful piece about um, how you're like not sad that you don't you know go party with celebrities anymore. You oh get God, I can't believe you read that. That's yeah, so of shameful. course. No, <laughs> is I. Is that online? Yeah, it's on. Um, is it L?
1: It was Red Book actually. Really? I, yeah.
2: I, I swear it was on L. Maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe, wrong. Maybe but...
1: it was though. Maybe they like maybe I mean they who knows where it. anything is anymore. It's kind of the problem.
2: But um yeah, that was great. So talk about like your personal life. I mean not too much oh. um, unless you want to. But, <laughs> just just um, go. <laughs> well, I mean just because like you, the story is basically that you like have a, a child now and you have so much fun hanging out with him that you don't really care that you're missing out on other things. Uh huh. Um and You know, I'm always kind of curious what that's like in in a writer's world or somebody who's kind of like a public figure because, you know, like it or not, you are. Um, People are reading your words and your character and your stories all the time. Um, So, like, what's that been like, you know, if you're pulling back a little bit?
1: What? Which?
2: I'm uh, I'm, Like, what's – Has it affected your writing at all when you find yourself – because, like,
0: Channing Tatum – uh, the article that you wrote for GQ is a crazy experiential story. You go out into the desert. You spend a night sleeping under the bushes in a random mining town out in California. Um, but now that you are a parent, it mm-hmm. sounds like from this Red Book article that Jeff may or may not have read on Redbook, which we, I think we just found out he's a fan. But has that – have you found that affecting your writing at all?
1: Um, being a parent? I think it's like affected my writing in that like it's much harder for me to like go um, on a whim out to the desert. I mean, (laughs) theoretically, I could have still done that because I was – I flew out to L.A. and I didn't have to, like, get home to a babysitter uh, or anything. Um, But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it sort of, like, curbs your ability to, like, do some of the kind of, like, really – crazy reporting stuff that i was talking about in the very beginning when i was saying like i used to just spend like hours and i would like you know fly places and like do like these days long like tapes and and um taking notes of that stuff that would never even make it into a piece um now it's like much more efficient i think in a lot of ways um but uh but there's still room to do that stuff
0: do you think that efficiency has made you a better writer
1: Um, I think it's useful. Mm -mm. I think. I don't know. (laughs) Hard to tell. Hard to (laughs) tell. Not really. I mean, like, maybe in that I drink less. Maybe that. I'm not as hungover as much, so I have more time. It's a fair, <laughs> more it's a fair work, conclusion. More working hours in the day.
2: What What are some of your – you actually mentioned that in the piece. Um, Did I really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said it, it's much easier to write I when you're really not I don't really write personal
1: essays very often, especially about parenting. Because I think like for a woman, it's it can be like a real trap where you – but it is very easy when you're you're like, I'm doing this already. Like I might as well just like write something about it. And like, but – um. But I do think that you can get into a real, a real whole writing about parenting and talking about parenting. I mean some people really just run with it and it's their careers. And actually it's like pretty lucrative I think for some people. But um, I'm trying not to do it too much. Although right. I do have a story in New York and that's been like floating around about raising kids in New York and weather.
2: or not. Good, good or bad. I, well, that's
0: the question. And I can't like I, I can't even imagine trying to financially support another person, who I also have to like keep alive. Yeah, in New York. Yeah, like this. Weird. The thought I can't like the thought of having a dog makes me so anxious that I like break out in hives. <laughs> because it's a thing that you have to take care of in New York, and there are so many. So, like, I can't imagine trying to do that with another
2: person. Yeah, so, which weird. is a little bit. So what's it like being, you know, a a female writer interviewing, you know, some of these really strong personalities that sometimes are kind of known for, you know, not being too kind to females?
1: Um, well, I think I, I mean, I sort of touched on it earlier when I said I don't write much about Wall Street anymore. And part of, that's part of the reason. Like I very briefly had a, like, was trying to do a column and I found that like having to spend a lot of time chatting with these like alpha dudes who come from a culture that's very sexist got very uncomfortable at times and just like was really unpleasant um and that was kind of why a huge part of why i was just like I can't, like, deal with this anymore. Forget it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, like, actually find the subject matter really interesting, but it was it was hard to be around the people a lot of the time.
2: So is that why you kind um, of transitioned a little bit to more, like, celebrity profiles?
1: That's part of the reason. I mean, part of the reason is that, like, it. I think any, like, financial writer will tell you it's just – it's never going to be as good as the financial crisis. It was just such a blast. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting. And, I mean, I'm sure that, like, something else really interesting is brewing and happening right now. But to stay in that muck for, like, all that time.
2: Um, I, I really hope that nothing is brewing right now.
1: Something is always brewing. Yeah. Sure, sure, there's, I mean, I still hear things. I still talk to people. I still, like, kind of keep, like, one foot in that. On that beat because I I think it's really interesting but to like do it as your life all the time especially as a woman um, I think is is hard.
2: Talk to us about your piece on uh, on Lynn Tilton.
1: Oh yeah, so I, this is I was I mentioned this to you. I sort of have and I was rereading it to see if like if if my guilt is actually. I think it might be larger than the piece warrants. But I, I do feel like that was a very strange piece. So Lynn Tilton was this, like, very over-the-top um, private equity investor um, who has this company called Patriarch Partners. And she wears, like, tight leather pants and, like, bustiers and, like, has, like, huge blonde hair and, like, you know, spike heel boots. And she talks about, like, Kabbalah. And she's just this very large personality. And she... Um, Uh, Is very smart um, but has this like – this personality that kind of just like blows people away and like has like kind of overshadowed things to some extent for her. And so I wrote about her and I guess it was like 2011 maybe. Um, That was not – all right. So how do I?
2: It was – the piece was great. Um and you know really enlightening and reminded me a little bit of of House of Lies also a Showtime show. Oh, I Um, I don't watch that one. That's a good one. My my buddy (laughs) writes it, so I have to watch it. But um, Kyle's nodding his head or shaking his head. My my high school friend's older brother writes that show. (laughs) Um,
0: However, (laughs) I'm under no obligation to share, and I would shake my head.
2: However, um. You know, I, I thought that uh, you you had emailed me about this piece, and you said that you had a lot of trouble, like kind of dealing with like the backlash because you thought that you know it was kind of fuel for a lot of the men in the piece, um, or men in general in the finance world, to kind of like jump down her throat a yeah. little bit. Yeah, um, I didn't really pick up on on much of that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, how do I say this? Um, I think that it was one of those stories where like. For me, especially early on, that was kind of early on, and um, with, like, financial-related stories, it took me, like, a long time to figure out what my, like, take on a situation was, like, and I was never, like, super confident in it, and I was, like, I think, like, that basically got published before I really knew what I wanted the story to be or what I really thought about her, about her, about her as an investor and as a a businesswoman as a personality, um, I was sort of like mid-process on that story a little bit. And um,
2: – Do you ever get the ability to kind of like hold back on something that you're not like entirely sure that you can that, – that's finished?
1: Um, sometimes. Um, not when – I think like not when something is slated for a particular issue. Got it. Then you're kind of just like, I have to go, I guess. So Sorry um, for interrupting. I mean, for me, like, almost nothing is ever finished. I could – the copy editors will tell you. So. <laughs> I'm not their friend. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I sort of felt like – so I hadn't really worked out, like, a theory of her by the time that – I didn't really totally have, like, grasp on it. And she had all this, like, super over-the-top girliness um, with the, the costumes and, and she would say these, like – crazy things to her employees like she'd be like you know, she was in private equity she'd be like I don't strip and flip companies I strip only strip and flip men like she would say like this is super like Mae West like <laughs> diva-ish amazing stuff I mean it was just this whole like act and it was hard for me to get past the act it's hard for everybody to get past the act because the act is like so front and center um, but uh, and then she posed for a photograph for the magazine where she's, like, in a um, like, naked and, like, a bearskin rug or something. Um, and that was part of the act. And that's, like, her whole thing. But I think that, like, I could have been more sensitive to her in some ways. I think that, like, she's actually a really complicated and interesting personality. And, like, she has this whole, like, Ayn Rand thing. And she wants to, like, save um, – in, uh, manufacturing in America and she means it like incredibly sincerely and that's kind of amazing in private <laughs> like that's kind of cool and like respectable and
2: and this came out the same year that your piece on you know Lloyd Blankfein and um, a couple other of the like financial institution pieces that you were writing came out so you know i guess it's it was it kind of like a were you seeing parallels or you know like a mirror image of some of the other pieces that you wrote
1: um no not really i mean this this was a really like unique i guess the parallel would be that it it wasn't a great time to be profiled in a magazine as a wall street person yeah and i think that she kind of suffered from that and she had the billions thing in the sec like i mean all this she she's in all kinds of trouble right now um i think partly due to being super visible and to this kind of like you know like who is this like joke of a person like because who's like this like crazy like you know kind of colorful figure like I, I don't know there was some like that can't be real that can't be right and i don't know i, I uh i'm not doing a very good job at talking about this i guess like yeah the reaction to it like wasn't great like people like a lot of people viewed it as like a takedown story of her um and that wasn't really my intention i thought she was like a really interesting person who was doing really interesting things yes. and and maybe had some kind of like issues yeah <laughs> but, but like oh, for sure but like that the kind of issues that, like, you could have, like, a lot more compassion for instead of just pointing at it and being like, isn't that kind of funny? And I don't think I really necessarily did that, but I think the people who read the piece kind of did because of the photographs and the whole over-the-top thing. To an extent. Can you edit this so it makes sense? Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We're going to leave that in there, though. (laughs) Actually, it
0: makes mostly coherent sense so far. I mean, I think you were – were were you surprised at all by the reaction after you published it? Had you expected that level of – Sort of writing her off afterwards.
1: Well, no. It actually ended up being this weird pile on because, like, what happened was she – I think she had told me that, like, Forbes – who does the billionaires list? Forbes. Forbes. Mm. That, like, Forbes was refusing to put her on the billionaires list. And, like, during, like, our fact-checking process, I, like, called Forbes to find out if that was true. And – Forbes acted very weird on the phone. <laughs> Whoever I talked to acted super weird on the phone. And then, you know, we closed the magazine on like a Thursday. I probably called them like a Wednesday or Tuesday. And they – as it turns out, we're also preparing a piece on her that was like a takedown piece of her like financial um, models, like her, her um, vehicles that she uses for investments, her CEOs actually. And um, – <laughs> The ones she patented or <laughs> just they, the ones in general? The ones the the ones that she patented, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh and they kind of like rushed their piece online, like right before I was you know, I mean, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean it was weird. It was just but it was just like two two things that were like kind of like da- like seem damaging. Like theirs was like a takedown piece yeah. of her financial.
2: And had had theirs not appeared, then yours might have read differently. I think so. And so, d- how often do you wish that you can go back and do like a follow up piece or like an addendum to? Something I never
1: want to do a follow up piece. I want to like rewrite the story. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> I know. It's in the Zeitgeist I know. now. Yeah, I I almost never want to actually do a follow up piece because um, I don't know. I think like magazine stories, like the beauty of them is that they kind of like. Are by
2: themselves standalone mm-hmm. stories. So uh, you write a lot for print. I think almost entirely for print. Well, at least at goes first for print. Too. Apparently, yeah.
1: apparently even Book's silly
0: as Someone. Read. Well, that no one, no one here has <laughs> read on Redbook. Definitely not.
2: <laughs> I mean, I'm not offended by reading. Like it's, it. I would happily read Redbook if that's where this was published. I just don't think that it was. Okay. Um, and, okay. May, and maybe I'm it wrong. Wasn't. It's okay, <laughs> oh. Jeff. It's okay.
0: I don't know it it
2: we believe you <laughs> anyway, um i we asked Jason Diamond this question who writes for men's journal, and uh you know, kind of like what it's like writing for online as opposed to writing for print and mm-hmm. um you know, everything that's written for print is put online um for the most part um and I'm just kind of wondering like is do you do anything differently if if you know that you're gonna be writing strictly for online?
1: um it's definitely shorter if it's online. Um, I do think, yeah, it's like structured a little bit differently, I would say.
2: More like I you know bite sized. like you can do takeaways and just by reading a paragraph or something.
1: Yeah, maybe. And then I put in like a link that says like, if you want to see more pictures of thighs, (laughs) I don't do that. Um, That's good. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. I think it used to be a lot more different, but now it's like kind of just all one voice.
2: Everybody's making it much more cohesive.
0: But it might be time to get into the story that you struggled to tell.
1: Yeah, well, so I was saying that a long time ago, you know, three years ago, (laughs) somebody there was one of those conversations going on why aren't there a lot of female magazine writers why aren't there more why aren't there more um and john chate who um will be upset that i'm bringing this up maybe because he got in trouble for it said i think in the new republic that um an issue that he had noticed with female magazine writers is that they didn't have like confidence in, in their ability or in their like um, thinking the way that a lot of male magazine writers did. And I totally that totally resonated with me because I feel like so much of the magazine writing that I read um, growing up, <laughs> you know, like or whatever, like was dudes just being like, it's just it's new journalism, it's Tom Wolf, it's like Gage and you're coming in with like this point of view and like it's just like unshakable. Cause you're like a man. You run the. World. I don't even know like what is behind it, but that is that is like the key to a successful magazine story is having confidence in your point of view. Um, so uh, that has definitely been a struggle. And early on in my career, I was constantly being kind of like buffeted by different editors opinions and and directions i just thought that everybody knew better than i knew what the story was um and really early on i wrote some stuff for like the new york times style section and it was like they would be like can you quote this person who's like a friend of this editor and i was like okay and like i just kind of like took like i or you know I, i i let things be twisted i i did a profile of of i worked at philadelphia magazine um which was very much like a magazine in the Clay Fulker mold, the founder of New York Magazine, City Magazine. Um, the idea was to kind of chronicle the parade of ambition and, and um, people that kind of went through the city and power. Um, and they had me do a story about Jennifer Weiner, who's an author, that I kind of think I got pushed into doing – kind of a snarkier kind of gotcha version of that story um, by a bunch of male editors, really. Um, and that, that was that was kind of very, like, demoralizing and weird for me because I felt bad about it when it came out. Like, I didn't like the way that that felt. Um, they were really happy with it, of course. But, um, but th- there was, like, always kind of a lot of, like, being pushed in, in a certain direction. Um, and I think, like, Um. Only like really recently have I just been like, no, I feel like this certain way about this thing, and it's so like freeing. And and I can't even like pinpoint what made me feel like that, and I probably won't feel like it for long. And I'll like go back into like a morass of (laughs) not knowing like how I feel about things. Like being like I have this opinion. I have an opinion is a hard thing, and I don't know if that's like a feminine trait as John Cheat would have it. <laughs> but I think it kind of is because we're so used to like being people pleasers and and um, you know, not wanting to offend people and not wanting to make people mad at us or, or you know, wanting to please your boss and, and there I think there is like a embedded aspect of that.
2: Do you do you think a piece of that might have been because you were younger though?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely being younger and, and not and thinking that the adults knew what was going on. Um and now I'm like, oh, I am the adult, and I have to, like, just make my own choices and my own decisions.
0: Um, like just on different subjects, is there a, a route you go now to help make sure that you are in fact standing your ground when you need to?
1: No, because sometimes I am wrong about <laughs> like a lot of things. so And I do need, like, other people's input. Um, but it's just, like, I guess, like, just sitting there and, like, weighing – you know, how your gut feelings about something is an important thing to do. And and to, like, it's really that. It's, like, actually just, like, what is my, like, gut? Does this feel bad or does this feel good? Like, does this feel like, do I actually think that? Or is that, like, some editor's fantasy version of what the story is? Like, um, You know, because that's the kind of thing I think, like, especially now with the Internet and everything, I think that there's a lot of pressure to do these kind of, like, the version that's going to get the most clicks or, like, the the version that has been, like, you know, engineered to be the most liked story. And it's not... When you're actually reporting stuff and going out into the world and talking to people, like, it just... Nothing fits that neatly into that version of it. So I think you have to be, like, extra careful. Um, And, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, there really are a lot of... It's kind of a very weird equation because... Um, a lot of the pieces that are published on the web today uh, kind of fit the same mold of, like, perspective. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if, if X says Y, then everybody's going to do Y. And if, if, you know, X says, you know, Y is wrong, we should do, you know, Z, everybody's going to go ahead and do Z. And I guess it's kind of like the hive mind where, you know, oftentimes the, the, the popular opinion is the one that becomes the only opinion. Um, and... I guess you're trying to say that, you know.
1: But sometimes you might disagree with that opinion and like yeah. and be like you know actually don't think that. Like <laughs> but like you know the hive mind has decided that like a thing is bad and like so you feel like you have to go along with the hive mind. It's the same thing with like editor and editors feel like they have to go along with the hive mind and like there's a huge
2: It's Donald Trump it, it's kind, it? kind of
0: what's happening. It
1: always comes back to it's Donald Trump. Yeah. It's all Donald Trump.
2: <laughs> is that your next profile? Everything is coming up Trump.
1: Everything
2: is coming up He's had a good Trump. week. He's had a really good week. But
1: no, I would think that that is the thing that I have struggled with. It's not like one – I've struggled to tell all stories because I think that like magazine writing and, and that is its hallmark is – having the confidence to have i don't like the word angle but like to have like a take on something and to just go with it and like trust your gut and like the most successful and and to think like this is interesting and this is important and people are like are gonna care like that's all the kind of stuff that weirdly combined it's not like been natural to me to have that kind of confidence um so so that's definitely been the thing that i've struggled with more than More than any one story that's present in like almost every story. Like is this take? Is this what I really feel like?
0: I think one of the things that is – one of the things that stands out about the profiles that you've written – that I've read is how clearly you can see the personality of someone through your writing. Um, Do you think that absence or the difficulty you've had formulating an opinion has helped or hurt you? when you're writing profiles like that
1: um well that's i i mean it's interesting to hear you say that i i hope that i wonder if the people themselves feel like that or or what (laughs) i mean like that's a whole other question um i think that like that's a different thing like where it's like that's a different question that i ask myself where i'm like is this the thing that happened? Like, you can get into, like, a distortion-y kind of writing mode when you're writing any kind of journalism. And, like, I do tape everything and I try to, like, really write things exactly as they happened, even though it's uncomfortable sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the same thing, like, where you're, like, I want to, like, have the confidence to just, like, write this as awkwardly as it occurred, <laughs> um, or you know, and like they're like insulting and weird to me, and like I'm just gonna like let that be there. Um, it, it's kind of the same thing.
0: I mean, I it's know. it's it's so striking though in the ways that it comes through. Like for Channing Tatum, I think it was the the, the description of his laugh. That humanizes him. And for Lynn Tilton, for instance, the moment when she's standing in just Gucci heels and she drops everything and is still talking to you without a change in sentence or like the way that she's talking
2: to you. I mean, it's those little flourishes that I feel like. Or the piece where you're talking to her daughter and, you know, her daughter is upset that, you know, her mom is actually doing any of these interviews because her daughter understands that it might be an embarrassing thing.
1: yeah. And that was an interesting piece of that story that I forgot happened until I reread it tonight that like
2: she was totally her daughter
1: is almost the voice of like reason in that story and in the way that I sort of Failed to be or, or something. I don't know. It's, it was a. It was an interesting aspect. I kind of just let it float out there. I feel like I didn't really like give it any
2: like weight. I, don't I think know. you're with that particular piece. I think you're being too hard on yourself. I thought it was really good. <laughs> I did.
0: Oh. I, I didn't read it as a takedown. Yeah. Okay. I, well, that's. I, I also good. am completely absent of the Forbes article that actually was a takedown. I didn't read that. Right. So I think it, it
1: might have been the the kind of one two punch of it because um yeah it, it was just kind of like a like a, a big uh, massive of
2: let's do you still this talk to Shannon down. Tatum
1: <laughs> I haven't talked to him in a while but you know is, is it I, I don't know if I told if I said this before but I ran into him in Brooklyn
2: you Did said I say that? you said yeah. that on long form yeah okay yeah
1: um, I, I haven't talked to him. In probably a couple of years, but we did like check in every so often for a while.
2: Because he, he told you that it wasn't
1: that long ago that I talked to him. I might have talked to him like a year ago.
2: Oh like right, every once in a while we'll like he, email. He, he told you to go back and you know let him know if somebody else had if like a more. Wi- him. Yeah, I
1: know. Well, no one has topped no him. One's in, topped oh,
2: you, this podcast hasn't topped. Him? <laughs> no, you hear that chatting? Yeah. No one's topped you. Yeah, well,
1: no one. No one has topped. Uh, and so, him. any So,
2: so where can our listeners find you online?
1: Um, what does that mean?
2: Website, Twitter. If oh, I want to my own website? I don't have one. I need you to have, have one. You have a I really have a weird Twitter. page. So I oh, should, I
1: know. It's so weird. I have I to sh- make it go away.
2: Yeah. Wait, what is it? Describe <laughs> it in detail. It's just right like now. a nothing page. It just exists.
0: I have to have a URL. It it's kind of cool to own internet real estate though, right? You're like, yeah, I'm sitting on this property. Someday it's going to be valuable. I'm
1: sitting on like a weed-strewn lot. <laughs> it's like a on cinder default. block on it <laughs> <laughs> and a like, single old tire yeah I have to deal with it it's, it's on my list my long list of things
2: what's your twitter feed?
1: Um, I think it's just Jay Pressler.
2: well thank you so much in a world that was a good
0: one that was a really good one I've got that voice man I could do that it was okay. I could do that professional.
2: By the way, it's been a week since we recorded that episode, and I now have proof that that article was on l.com
0: I feel like you're adding some level of judgment that wasn't there in the first place, and it's a little bit more indicative of how you feel about Redbook than it is about how I feel about Redbook.
2: I don't think I said it was good or bad. It's, it's now been a week since we recorded this episode, and there has not been a day that's gone by where you haven't made fun of me for reading Redbook. That is categorically untrue, and I will deny it to my dying breath. In any case... You all can follow Jessica Pressler on Twitter at J Pressler as J P R E S S L E R. You can also follow Kyle on Twitter at Kyle Craner, uh, 84 followers strong. <laughs> you can follow me at Jeff Umbro. Uh, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who listened to this episode and anybody who's listened to any of our episodes, because it really does mean a lot. Uh, we've been getting, you know, a small flood of text messages and emails and tweets telling us that you all really like appreciate what we're doing. And I just want to let you know that, um, you know, it really does feel great. So thank you so much.
0: And if you have thoughts about the podcast, if there's things you want to hear, send us those thoughts. We love hearing from people and we love hearing from our listeners.
2: So you can find us online at www.dwpodcast.com. Uh, you can subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. You can rate us on either or comment or share or like, or, you know, whatever it is that young kids are doing online these days and the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the show is from ryan dan of holland patent public library you can find him online at hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com and i wanted to say thank you